Hello, and welcome to the PeerTA podcast. My name is Bright Sappho, and I'm a member of the PeerTA team, where we facilitate information sharing across state and local agencies implementing TANF and other programs to provide technical assistance, facilitate dialogue, and help programs learn about effective strategies to support families. I'll be your host for this podcast. And in this episode, we'll be discussing a key and essential resource that TANF agency staff use across the country when working with clients. And that resource is compassion. Compassion can be defined as feeling for others who are in pain with warmth, empathic concern, and capacity to understand their perspective and intentions. Compassion can be necessary in human service settings to effectively engage clients, understand the context surrounding their journey and personal goals, and to accurately identify appropriate supportive services. But if we consider compassion as a finite resource, what happens if it runs out? In this episode, we'll be discussing a condition called compassion fatigue, which experts have defined as a combination of physical, emotional, and spiritual depletion associated with caring for those in significant pain. Based on this definition, TANF staff and administrators can be especially at risk for compassion fatigue as they provide one-on-one support to individuals that may be experiencing crisis, trauma, or economic challenges causing emotional distress. Today, we'll be joined by three guests. You'll hear from Anna Teakip, who is a clinician at a workforce development organization in Denver, Colorado, called the Center for Work Education and Employment. She works specifically with community partners to provide support in responding to trauma. She has over 20 years of experience working with survivors of trauma, with much of that time focused specifically with TANF recipients. We also spoke to Santa Molina Marshall, who has been working with survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence through her private practice for over 20 years. She has worked with organizations that address violence and trauma and has hosted webinars on preventing compassion fatigue. We also spoke to Jerry Cotter, a project manager for the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. She works for the Office of Workforce Development and runs the Comprehensive Case Management and Employment Program, or CCMEP. Our guests will share what compassion fatigue is, the risks surrounding it, and what TANF agencies and staff can do about it. So to start off, we asked our guests to tell us what exactly is compassion fatigue. First, we'll hear from Anna. Uh, my name is Anna Teakip, and I am the clinician at the Center for Work, Education, and Employment. I really think of compassion fatigue as being the stress or suffering, hardship, Um, that we experience as a result of serving in a helping capacity. The most important thing I think to pull about compassion fatigue is that it is a natural outcome of knowing about trauma and being exposed to trauma. So if we really have an analysis where we think of poverty and financial stress as being a form of trauma, of traumatic stress, then when we're working in TANF and we're working in inter-property organizations and we're exposed to that trauma, it is a natural outcome. The kind of the impact that it has on us is expected and natural Um, but it is the stress that we start to feel in a number of ways um, in response to our helping work. Our work is impactful. We will be impacted. We heard a similar description from Santa Molina Marshall. My name is Santa Molina Marshall, and I have been in the field of mental health for about 30 years now. Compassion fatigue is the experience that we have when we are overexposed in having to provide compassionate services, be it at an employer or in our own personal life. I would say that the first, the very first sign is feeling like your vehicle running out of gas, feeling like you just don't have enough energy, having limited opportunities or 
exposures to anything other than what has to be done. And I said limiting opportunities and exposures, and really what I mean is lack of desire. So the opportunities are there, but when you begin to have a lack of desire, um, just losing interest of things that you ordinarily do because you're running out of gas and your body knows that and your body starts to um, preserve whatever little bit is there. Sometimes compassion fatigue can get lumped in with other conditions associated with the helping professions, such as burnout, secondary trauma, or vicarious trauma. So we asked our guests if there was a distinction between these concepts, and if so, how did they relate to one another? Anna offered some insight into these differences. So hard. They're, they're, they're cousins, right? Or siblings, maybe. They're all in the same family. And mm-hmm. where one begins and the other ends can be really hard to distinguish. I think we're really about compassion fatigue. We're talking really about that expected natural relatively low level constellation of responses and behaviors. When we talk about vicarious trauma, we're moving into a kind of more of a clinical subset, right? Where people might actually start experiencing um, symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder or experience post-traumatic stress disorder itself. Um, And I think burnout, I think we could talk about in a lot of different ways. It's burnout really becomes the inability to continue to do the work, right? It's just a complete depletion. So we really want to think about compassion fatigue as kind of this lower level um, indicator of the response that, again, isn't, you know, we don't want to pathologize it. We want to really think about it as a typical and expected response to the work. It's also how much it's affecting your work. People who are experiencing compassion fatigue are able to still do their jobs, just not as fully and as richly and as effectively as we hoped. And that's where we start to see systems that are just turning the wheel of the machine and ultimately risking causing harm to people who are trying to serve. Santa describes similar distinctions between burnout and compassion fatigue, as well as vicarious trauma. The burnout is, has nothing to do with compassion. You can get burnt out, you know, making ice cream or whatever. I don't know. That's probably stressful too, but uh, the burnout is more demand than there are resources. Now, these resources are outside resource, whereas when we talk about compassion fatigue, they're your internal. The tank inside is empty versus the tank outside, right? Uh, Which is what what burnout is. Burnout um, leaves an individual feeling perhaps frustrated, abused, done to, and you know what? And I can just pick up somewhere else where they have enough resources for me to do my task and recover very easily. Is the demand that creates the burnout. Whereas compassion fatigue, I am the resource. And when my resource is emptied out, then there's nothing left. Nothing left. I can't go to another place and say, oh, just give me more equipment. My compassion, ability to be compassionate is, is, on, is on very low, uh, probably non, uh, non-existent if, if it's pretty extreme. Another big distinction is that in burnout, I still have a full life. I can still be happy and joyful and free and, um, you know, have family and friends and want to have joy. For compassion fatigue, it is hard to be with people we love and care about and not have some sense of compassion. Vicarious trauma resembles more compassion fatigue than burnout. Vicarious trauma is the experience that we have, again, when you work with, when you're in an environment where there are a lot of people with trauma, you vicariously, 
through the experience, through the witnessing, through the exposure, because you are being attentive and compassionate and caring, you now become traumatized yourself. We also asked our guests to share some of the symptoms of compassion fatigue and why they matter. Anna offers some insight as she compares compassion fatigue to muscle fatigue. I think an analogy that can feel helpful when we talk about expected fatigue is we can think about a runner. You know, a runner is going to prepare to go for a run. They're going to get the vitamins they need, the fuel that they need to come to do the work, to do, to take the run. And they're going to experience exhaustion after the run. They're not going to ignore the muscle fatigue. They're not going to ignore the exhaustion. They're going to stretch. They're going to take an ice bath. They're going to take some ibuprofen. I don't know what, you know, so we think about it as nothing that we want to ignore. It's the whole goal is to attend to it and assess compassion fatigue as it's happening, as expect outcome of doing the work, right? Doing, we ran the race, we're running the race every day, probably. Right. And so <laughs> how do we really attend to how it affects us? How, what are the strategies that we use? What are the resources that we provide to our staff and our organizations to heal and be able to sustain the work so we can get up and go again the next day? Physically, you see, impaired immune systems, chronic exhaustion, um, just the inability to kind of recover and heal as quickly as we might otherwise from illness or injury, you know, so this kind of sense of depletion and exhaustion physically. And then there's some behavioral responses to withdrawal, you know, inability to sleep, um, ability to kind of listen, deliberate avoidance, you know, and we're thinking about how that impacts our relationship with our participants, with our consumers that we're trying to serve as well as with each other, with our colleagues and our teams. She goes on to tell us some of the emotional and cognitive effects of compassion fatigue. So we might see some folks really kind of numbing out, losing their ability to empathize, sadness, feeling kind of helpless. Um, Especially when we're doing work that is tackling really, you know, big problems. We're looking at the systems and legacies of financial stress, right? And we're really trying to tackle these big problems. But that emotional response can also be the activation piece, right? So cynicism and anger, um, that guilt or the feeling that you just can never do enough, right? Like this kind of not being able to let it go. Both might show up in the same person, or we might be managing a team, which with some people move towards that withdrawal piece. And some people are overexerting and activated and unable to kind of withdraw from the work in a way that's helpful. Cognitively, we see lowered concentration, apathy, um, can be a preoccupation with trauma. Anna also talked about how compassion fatigue can diminish creativity in favor of compliance. One thing that I really like to pull out when we're talking about some of the cognitive or in uh, responses in compassion fatigue is diminished creativity. And we can see folks really moving into uh, a focus on compliance over innovation. I think that there are really so many ways that that kind of pull towards compliance over innovation can show up in the work. Rules can create safety. And so when we're feeling exhausted and we're feeling overwhelmed, we can fall back on these kind of existing rules, right? In the, in the structure that exists. And so that rule can be, did you turn on your timesheet on time or not? And in a place where we might be more innovative, we might have more energy, we might be able to think about how do I support people getting their timesheet to me? How do I, do I provide reminders? What is the window we provide? When I'm feeling this pull towards compliance or rigidity, it's like, well, sorry, you didn't, you didn't meet the limit, right? You didn't meet the deadline. We start focusing on deadlines. We start focusing on the numbers. 
and we lose sight of the real lived experience of both our participants and consumers and our team and our staff. And we lose some of that ability to be nimble in our response and creative in how we support engagement. And so when we think about the ways in which we're trying to support people in you know, a benefit system that has a compliance component already, how are we able to meet people where they are and provide really creative and innovative like types of support when ourselves, we ourselves are feeling that diminished creativity and that like shift to compliance over innovation? Similarly, Santa shared how those experiencing compassion fatigue may become more irritable and reactive towards clients. Yeah, well, we all have, um, all of us have a, a certain degree of capacity to have discernment, right? Um, to be able to pull from our experiences to be more available, more compassionate. I have the ability to bring in those what I call filters, which are just awarenesses that say, you're here serving this person. This has nothing to do with your judgment and your you know, memories or whatever, right? I have the ability to, to assess that for myself, discern, and no matter what my beliefs or judgments are, to bring myself back to, I'm here, this is a job. My job is simply to offer service. But if I'm tired, if I'm on empty, if I have nothing else to give, I don't have as much of a ability to bring in that, that discernment, right? To set that boundary for myself. And so now I'm a little bit more, I'm more sensitive or I am more defensive, mm-hmm. right? Because the less protected you feel, the more likely I will feel attacked. We also asked our guests to talk about some of the risk factors for compassion fatigue. Anna provides some insight into how exposure to trauma can be a key risk factor. People who are hearing specific stories about trauma um, will have a greater risk experiencing compassion fatigue. So we think about the different roles in our organizations and in our programs, uh, the length of employment. So the longer we're doing the work, you know, it's a cute, it can be a cumulative impact. And then this, this pull that is often um, part of our work, specific to our roles, this need to come always, this expectation that we're always empathetic, right? And the skills that we have built around being empathetic and expressing empathy also can make it harder for us to turn away from the work, to withdraw from the work in ways that are intentional and helpful and help us to contain. And so that kind of... Um, need to be empathetic all the time and this expectation that I need to always kind of be on and be this person that listens and has empathy can make us more vulnerable. Sansa talked about how compassion fatigue may lead to a response cycle of disconnection and escapism that does not effectively replenish energy. Well, the isolation is, is just the given that if I'm on empty, I'm going to go home and hide out. But if you have compassion fatigue, you're ready to sleep. You're ready to self-medicate with food, with alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever, binge television, you're ready to escape. But I also am not refueling. So you're on empty. You don't even have the energy to go to the gas station and get filled up. And, you know, a TANF, a social worker, staff person of any case, case manager also has a life, right? So that means that they have their own experiences of, challenges that are going out that are not about work but guess where those end up right and they they end up taking fuel from the same empty tank 
right? So it gets exacerbated, right? So it's not just the impact that work is doing, is the impact, the history, the impact of work, the history I've had, and then also managing my own life, which probably has some challenges as we all have. Santa talked about how reminders of any past trauma or struggles faced by human service staff can be triggered by clients. A trigger is an experience that actually reminds you of an experience. And that reminder comes in a lot of different ways. And what it reminds me of, specifically if we're using the word trigger, is something that was upsetting, hard to challenge, anxiety-provoking. I can be triggered by an individual that comes in need, particularly when I'm already vulnerable and I'm reminded of the experiences that I may have had. And so I can get triggered by what you're asking me to do. If I have had experience of feeling disempowered most of my life and I cannot assist a client who comes in uh, asking for services or requesting, I may feel I'm tired, I have nothing to give, now I feel helpless and hopeless. And that may remind me, right, it triggers a memory, that may remind me of times in my life when I was hungry and perilous and et cetera, et cetera. Um, It may also remind me of the times when I was judged for not having financial uh, security or for not working hard enough. One of the possible contributing factors to compassion fatigue we were curious about was the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent changes it made to the way people engage with their peers and networks. Anna shared the complex ways in which COVID-19-related client challenges have exposed human service workers to more trauma. I mean, one, people are experiencing a higher level of hardship writ large, right? People are experiencing increased trauma in their own lives, loss and grief and fear and anxiety in their own lives. Um, they're also experiencing that with people they serve who are experiencing increased loss and grief and stress and worry and financial hardship. Um, and that's both have a new environment and an environment that has really actually highlighted and really brought home the discrepancies that already existed in our communities, right? Prior to COVID and prior to the pandemic, there's like an increased exposure to increased stress. So there's a, there's just that piece of it. And then we think specifically about the isolation component or the shift to remote work. You know, I think there's several layers to that. It's not being able to move away from my work by going to a break room, pouring a cup of coffee and seeing somebody else. There's not this kind of like, you know, sister and brotherhood of shared experience and shared knowledge in the same way. As tangible, I mean, I think many of us are working our best to have great meetings and connections over Zoom and over phone calls. And, you know, but as we're really thinking about that kind of um, less formal peer support that happens in a work environment where you're shared workspace, um, the loss of that piece um, is there. And then I think the inability to leave work behind in the same way that we did if we went to the office and then left the office. If we're doing the work in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, in our home offices, um, and maybe we're doing the work with our family right there, and we're doing this, you know, that there's this loss of kind of the boundaries and the separation from work, both in terms of time management. We can now turn on the computer and do some emailing at midnight if we, you know, this kind of inability to kind of be away from work in the same way is, has a huge impact. Anna also talked about the loss of what she called coping systems as also being a COVID-related contributor 
to compassion fatigue? We've seen less access to some of our usual coping systems, right? And so some of the things that we might have done to help mitigate our compassion fatigue weren't available to us. And that may be, again, be some of the peer support that may be some of the like actual physical separation from work. And we just haven't had access to the social lives that we've had. We haven't had access to gyms. We haven't had, you know, and so some of those low hanging fruit of some of our support resources also haven't been available to us. And so I think we're, it makes sense to see an increase in some of that compassion fatigue without loss of support resources. Next, we'll hear from Gary Cotter. My name is Jerry Cotter. I am the CCMP project manager for the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. Uh, it's a comprehensive case management and employment program. Jerry shared a perspective that appeared consistent with Anna's in her observation of her own staff. You know, obviously everybody's been a little bit more stressed out overall, and we're all experiencing stress related to the pandemic. But I think, especially when um, staff have been working remotely who hadn't been in the past, you know, suddenly they were more remote. And I think, you know, what we heard, and certainly I experienced myself, I, I hadn't worked remotely in the past either, um, is people feel, I think, more isolated uh, than they had in the past. And they had more opportunities to sort of like, you know, talk to their coworkers about things that were going on or issues they may have been having, um, or even their supervisory, they could, you know, just pop by. Um, and now everything is remote. So, you know, almost almost every interaction is a meeting. Um, people are much less likely to just, you know, call somebody that's a coworker or supervisor, I think, and everything has to kind of be scheduled. Um, so I think, yeah, that isolation, not really having that um, avenue to sort of, you know, get a, a release and talking to others immediately who are around you, um, that sort of went away during the pandemic. Now that we heard how compassion fatigue can pose a threat to workers, particularly with the increased isolation spurred by the pandemic, what can agencies and organizations do about it? We asked Anna to tell us a little bit about how agencies can effectively assess compassion fatigue amongst their staff. It's where we start, right? It's so important to think about assessment. How does our assessment support a culture, an organizational culture in which we, again, normalize and expect compassion fatigue? So I think there, there are two really concrete and tangible ways that I like to talk about when talking about assessment. Um, one is that there's this wonderful tool called the Professional Quality of Life Scale. Um, you can Google the Professional Quality of Life Scale and you'll, it has its own website and it's a free tool. It's a tool that's been made free and it's very user-friendly. And it will, it's a very quick assessment. Uh, staff can, individuals can take the assessment and it will help kind of put them on a spectrum from compassion satisfaction um, to compassion fatigue. And it's just, it's just a clue, right? It just gives us information about how we're doing. It has um, very targeted assessment questions. So I highly recommend that tool and thinking about ways to integrate that tool with a regular cadence into supervision. We also talked about ways to address compassion fatigue. One initial step that our guests appear to agree on is the importance of acknowledging and normalizing compassion fatigue. First, we will hear from Anna, who also acknowledges how it's important to think beyond client-facing staff alone. We know that we say, how are you doing? Most people say fine, right? And that is especially true if we haven't really invested in creating a culture of, of vulnerability and transparency and be able to share how we're really doing. So I like to really think about a couple of ways of asking about how people are doing that intend to also normalize the expectation that the work will impact us. So literally just saying, how has the work been impacting you today? 
How is the work been impacting you this week? You know, what is whatever your kind of check-in schedule and check-in cadence is with your team, um, asking about impact. Just asking about impact. This is this is information back from when I used to do more into partner violence assessments. And we talk about, we ask about behaviors, not labels, right? We, we talk about, so what is the impact? We normalize it by using the word impact. That we expect it to impact you. Jerry also agreed with the importance of building a space for discussion. I think... I mean, if I if I had to pick one thing, I'd say talking about it and talking about it on a regular basis and bringing it up as a as a valid t- topic of discussion. Um, people don't want to admit that they may have some kind of you know in their mind weakness. It's taking care of yourself is really important, and and especially in the helping professions, I think sometimes you know folks have a tendency to take care of everybody else, um, and so. I think the more you can talk about it, remind folks that, yeah, you need to take care of yourself too. And that's really important. If you can't take care of yourself, you're not able to really take care of other people as well. Um, but you really need to prioritize self-care. Anna also offered some insight into what normalizing compassion fatigue as an expected part of the job could look like in human service settings. The other thing that I think can be a really helpful is really thinking about a model of ramping up to the work, sustaining the work, and ramping down from the work. And again, that might be a weekly that might be on a, a weekly check-in. But we're really asking, what are you doing? What does your week ahead look like? How are you preparing for that week? How are you preparing for the work? During the week, how do you plan to sustain the work? What are your plans? Right? And these plans may be about time management, they may be about task management, but we need to not only be focusing on tasking, but also focusing on those resourcing behaviors, right? I'm going to make sure I end my day by five o'clock. I'm going to pack my office up and put it in a bag. I'm going, you know, I'm going to make sure I take a lunch break. Now that we heard about the importance of normalizing compassion fatigue, what else can TANF agencies do to create safe spaces to effectively address compassion fatigue? Anna mentions the importance of creating trauma-informed spaces. What the assumption of trauma means is that we have an awareness that trauma is in the world that it's very common. And it's probably more common in our communities that we're serving who are receiving TANF or public benefits because we know that financial stress can be traumatic, right? So it assumes trauma and that means it assumes trauma exposure for our teams and for our staff. Now, this is really important that we pull out two things here. When we talk about the assumption of trauma, one thing it does is it frees us from having to know about specific trauma. This is a protective thing for our frontline staff. If we can assume that trauma is likely to be present in the lives of the people we serve and in the lives of our staff and teams and organizations, then we don't need to ask specific questions about it because we're going to have a trauma-informed response regardless. We're going to maintain a space for curiosity about what might have happened to this person that's informing this behavior rather than what's wrong with this person that's informing this behavior, right? And so there's a real shift and then we're going to pull that shift into supervision too. Not what's wrong with you, why can't you do the work, but what's happening to you as you do the work. And so we're really creating that shift and it hopefully creates this protective barrier, again, from not having to know about specific traumas and saying what really did happen to you, but just being able to create this space for empathic curiosity to join people where they are. The other really important trauma-informed approaches I think is really essential when we talk about an organizational response to compassion fatigue or a culture that is going to normalize compassion fatigue is that healing happens in relationship. 
And so our response about how we're supporting our teams and our staff is about how do we create opportunity for relationship building? And that's why we really look at some of that messaging and the language we use and how we assess and how we check in with our teams and our staff. Santa talked about creating actual physical spaces for staff to replenish. I think that organizations can create space for their staff to have breaks or rest by having physical space in there. A particular room where the phone's not going to ring or you're not going to hear a speaker or clients can't come in. That's comfortable. Where there may be coffee, tea, maybe even snacks, uh, where there are couches, where there's a spirit of healing. Whatever that means for that organization institution, right? A spirit of healing. Maybe there's a television that has elevated music going on with beautiful scenes just all day. People can go in there and say, let me just go into the room and sit for a minute and breathe. That room can be filled with all kinds of things like essential oils and affirmation books and reminders of the human race and you know, just things that motivate and, and uplift. Something that says we care and we know that this work is is triggering, right? That it that it's going to bring up a lot of experiences of just feeling depleted at times. In addition to creating an environment that allows staff to replenish as a way of preventing compassion fatigue, there are also ways human service staff can effectively work with clients in ways that may reduce exposure to trauma. Jerry described one example of this in relation to an assessment program providers implemented as part of their intake process. So the the prior assessment um, asked uh, things like, um, you know, whether the you know, the client had experienced domestic abuse, um, whether um, their children had been abused. Um, and, and so we're trying uh, not to ask that specific a question. So, you know, um, more like asking them, you know, um, what's their housing situation? What's their family like? you know, instead of asking those specific, like, were you abused? Did you experience abuse? Um, those kinds of very specific questions. I, I've, you know, gotten feedback were not very helpful. And so um, we definitely pared that down um, quite a bit and um, moved to another assessment that's more focused on, I think, the future um, and goals so that there's less of a chance it'll bring up some of those traumatic experiences in conversation. Um, not that we, you know, don't ever want clients talking about that, but we don't want to be promoting those conversations if they're not absolutely necessary. Anna had some insight to share about how typical practices regarding assessments and intake forms can play a role in exposing human service staff to trauma. I think when we think about the direct service practice or the kind of client-facing practices that might mitigate compassion fatigue for the helper and re-traumatization for the client, right? And so it's such an important invitation to be looking at all of our assessment and intake forms and conversations and really strictly and critically examining what do we need to know and why. When we hear people, we start to hear about people's hardship it activates us. It, it pulls us into wanting to help more. And that can often get kind of confused with needing to know more. And 
finding really concrete ways to resist that kind of detective urge, right? This kind of, I tell me everything. And it's hard because we think of ourselves as safe and helpful and well-intended people. And that's where we're coming from, but that's not always our impact, right? We know that there can be a, a large distance between intent and impact. And we need to have very critical eyes on our forms and our expectations, especially at intake, when, when the trust has yet to be built and the safety and the container have yet to be established, that we're not asking for information we don't need. In addition to shifting the way they do assessments at CCEMP, Jerry also describes some of the methods they use to coach and support their clients to reduce exposure to trauma. I think at the foundation of the coaching model is, is motivational interviewing. Um, it's also about focusing on participant motivation and participant goals. So the participant, or I call them participants, so I know we've been talking about clients, but um, so the clients are really more in the driver's seat as far as like identifying their goals and the case managers are more facilitators in helping the clients identify goals. Um, and then supporting them in achieving those goals. So, um, so it also takes, I think, some of the, the feeling of responsibility for case managers on whether the client succeeds or doesn't succeed off them. It takes that weight off of them as well, um, which I think helps with compassion fatigue. And then because the, the client is in the driver's seat, you know, more of the responsibility is on them and the case manager is sort of supporting them and coaching them to get to their goal. That makes sense. Jerry described the training and educational materials she sends out to implementation partners of the CCEMP program focused on compassion fatigue and self-care. So we have, um, we've been trying to offer regular trainings on compassion fatigue, and we've also been sending out um, resources on a regular basis uh, to try and help combat compassion fatigue and encourage folks to, you know, sort of take that time for self-care and refresh um, we've sent probably messages out. It, we include it in our trainings. Um, we include information about it in our newsletter. Uh, we really try and regularly remind everyone, um, probably at least twice a month, if not more often, to take time out for themselves for that self-care um, and to make sure that they, like I said, um, are able to replenish their own energy and uh positivity by taking time to rest, do things that they enjoy doing, um, and, uh, and then talk to others if they are experiencing um, secondary trauma. So uh, definitely taking time out. We've you know, provided some, um, some resources on trying to uh, combat negative thinking patterns and how to sort of change the direction of your thinking. I'm sure we've all experienced that where, you know, something comes up and you just keep thinking about it. And um, so if you, you know, experience a situation where you're kind of getting that secondary trauma, trying to give them strategies on ways to sort of break that thinking pattern and, you know, um, do something else that could, could be more positive. Um, for example, I know, um, you know, we've, when we've done some training, some folks have said that things that they like to do uh, to try and change their, you know, mindset would be, you know, if someone enjoys reading, they could, you know, read some type of um, a book to try and uh, change, again, that 
that mind pattern where you keep thinking about the same thing, especially if it's something traumatic. Anna talked about organizational policies agencies can consider to mitigate the negative impacts of compassion fatigue. There are policies, there are opportunities that we can think about on organizational levels, for sure. We think about schedules and PTO, right? So we think about how do we mitigate the impact of compassion fatigue before we even, you know, before we know whether it's really a problem or not, because we're going to, again, assume that this is part of the work. So we think about how do we, what, at what levels do we provide paid time off? Do we have a model to that supports wellness? Do we just have sick time or do we have wellness time? Is there a way to encourage people to be proactive and preventative in their healthcare strategies and their wellness activities? Um, Social service providers are actually the third, have the third highest rate of burnout in the country just after physicians and nurses, right? This is, this is a real thing. And we know, we have seen firsthand both the organizational and programmatic cost of turnover and the impact it has on the people we are trying to serve, right? If they lose their helper on a regular basis and they don't have that, that connection, that tie to your program, to your organization, you, we aren't able to serve and provide help as effectively as we could. And so this idea of really trying to prevent that burnout and that cost. So we want to invest in those wellness practices. We want to invest in time off. We want to um, shift some of that, uh, some of the narrative around how we use and spend our money. We need to have a narrative where we say we invest in our staff's wellness because investing in our staff's wellness is investing in our community, is investing in our programming, is investing in our participants and our consumers. So there are a few takeaways to keep in mind based on what our guests shared today. First, compassion fatigue can be defined as the stress that comes with serving in a helping profession, which can lead to diminished creativity, withdrawal, sleeplessness, and irritability. Acknowledging the reality of compassion fatigue can be a first step in creating an organizational culture within TANF agencies where staff can feel comfortable sharing their struggle and providing human services. This can allow TANF agencies to assess compassion fatigue and also receive feedback from their staff on organizational structures that may be contributing to it as well. Strategies for mitigating the negative impacts of compassion fatigue can include creating spaces for refueling and replenishing, providing self-care tools and resources, and considering changes to organizational policies that promote wellness among staff. I hope these strategies have given you an idea of how you can recognize and address the negative effects of compassion fatigue within yourselves and organizations. And a special thanks to our guests, Anna Teacup, Santa Molina Marshall, and Jerry Cotter. You can learn more about PeerTA on our website at peerta.acf.hhs.gov, where you can also submit a request for peer-based technical assistance related to any of the topics discussed on this podcast. Support for this podcast comes from the Office of Family Assistance within the Administration for Children and Family Services at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the Office of Family Assistance, the Administration for Children and Families, or the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Again, I'm Bright Sappho. I hope that you listen in next time on the Peer TA Podcast.